0: Welcome listeners to this now season two, episode four of the When Science Makes History podcast. This episode is on plastics. Here's a thought experiment. Look around you, wherever you are presently, and see if you can touch something made from plastic. Chances are very good that this is a simple task. If you're driving, the plastic parts surrounding your vehicle are innumerable, If you're sitting in your home, the same is true. You know, a more intriguing experiment may very well be to see if you can find a place where you cannot touch or contact something made from plastic. It is literally everywhere. This, however, was not always the case. Over the course of history, humankind made use of a variety of non-plastic products found or made from natural elements. Wood, glass, bone, shell plant fibers, and so on. Technically, plastics as well are substances that have been made from natural elements. They're primarily derived from crude oil, coal, or other petroleum products. In the English vocabulary, there's a word, ubiquitous, meaning found everywhere, and it is an appropriate moniker for plastics. Ironically, there's also a protein that is found in almost all eukaryotic tissues called ubiquitin, but I digress. That's off-topic other than associating the words ubiquitous and plastics. Plastics are found everywhere on our planet, and as we expand to our moon and other planets, such as Mars, they will certainly be found there as well. The Mars rover, for example, on occasion discovers a unique object, and when scientists zoom in on it, they soon realize it's debris from the landing, some of it plastic. We're literally leaving a smudged handprint in the form of plastics even on other planets. I'm not trying to be preachy or hyper-environmental, but I simply want to present the science and history of plastics and then encourage us to consider if we can possibly do better. So, let's dive into this episode of When Science Makes History, entitled Plastic. Well, here we are in year two, and I seem to be surviving the making of my own podcast contrary to my initial fears. When I listen to podcasts, I want to get as much content as possible in a short amount of time. Whether driving, painting a house, or mowing the lawn, I don't want to listen to 10 minutes of advertisers making money for the host. You will note this podcast is notably absent of advertisers and is fast-flowing in content. But there is one advertisement I need to make in my effort to highlight the host agency of this podcast, Anchor and Spotify. When it comes to making my own podcast, I have actually enjoyed the ease of using Anchor. They have made the podcast production side of things rather straightforward. They have everything you need all in one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple podcast, and more. In fact, Anchor was acquired by Spotify and the two are now one under Spotify for podcasters. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Seriously. Best of all, Anchor is totally free. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started and make your own podcast with the help of Anchor. Welcome back to this episode of When Science Makes History with this episode on plastic. Let's start with a little history. Plastics didn't always exist, nor is it a natural substance we can harvest from plant or animal products concept of plastic, however, did have its genesis in converting natural products into synthetic products. You see, the early investigations of what eventually became plastics began by taking products produced in nature and modifying them. It can be rather easily done. In fact, as a sixth grader, I recall a science book talking about a way to make a type of plastic from milk. As a youngster, I quickly tried it. It worked fabulously and became a demonstration I used many times in my science teaching career over the next decades. You simply take some milk, warm it up on the stove, then add some vinegar. The curdled product can be run through a coffee filter in a funnel, separating out the curds. These curds are a protein found in milk that is called Cassian. The addition of the acid, vinegar in this case, and heating causes the single monomers to form long chains of Cassian molecules, hence a polymer. This became an early form of polymerization and the start of the plastics industry. Take a in natural products such as milk or cellulose and polymerize it to make long molecule chains that we know of today as plastics. The honor of inventing the first plastic is believed to be John Wesley Hyatt in 1863. He took cellulose, a natural plant fiber, and made it into a product called celluloid. Hyatt was after a prize that was being offered to find a suitable alternative to ivory, which was used in billiard balls and piano keys. Obviously, the only source of ivory is an elephant or walrus tusk, which meant harming or killing the animal. A more humane method was being sought, and Hyatt set about using cellulose from plants to craft a product similar enough to ivory to be an effective substitute. It worked and he produced celluloid. It didn't work as well as ivory, however, and never made it as a billiard ball substitute. While companies offered substantial cash rewards, Hyatt never actually collected one for whatever reason. His celluloid nitrate billiard ball now resides in the Smithsonian Museum under item number 334572. What Hyatt did was to create the first compound we know today as plastic. It could be shaped, colored, textured, and it was also virtually indestructible. These aspects of plastics are what endear us to them, but also make them so difficult to dispose of properly. Incidentally, there's some discussion around if Hyatt was the first, or if the British inventor Alexander Parks was the first, as Hyatt acquired some of Parks' patents and subsequently began playing around with cellulose nitrate. If you're picking up on that name, the fact that it was a nitrate also gives a hint as to why it wasn't such a good substitute. It was rather flammable. You can envision a little cigar ash at the bar, around the pool table, and a catastrophic event ensuing. Hyatt went on to form the Albany Billiard Company, making billiard balls, obviously, but also false teeth and piano keys before changing it to the Celluloid Manufacturing Company, moving it to New Jersey. Plastic development skyrocketed in the following decades with Bakelite, Nylon, Polystyrene, Polyethylene, and even Teflon and Kevlar all coming on the scene, with countless other plastics I failed to mention in that list. The science behind it is pretty straightforward and the research in plastic development is iterative. A single molecule of ethylene, for example, is called a monomer. Mono meaning one. Stick two ethylenes together and you get di, two dimer, three a trimer, and so on and so on. You get the picture. Stick a whole lot of ethylene molecules together in a chain and you get a polymer of ethylene called polyethylene, which is what plastic sandwich baggies are made out of, polyethylene. The process of connecting the monomers into long chains is called polymerization. Plastic research development essentially works by substituting different monomers, polymerization processes, and other techniques to get a plastic that is, well, whatever the researcher is looking for. A lot of it is serendipitous, Teflon was an accidental discovery, whereas Kevlar was the result of researchers seeking stronger car tire fabric. Yes, there are fibers in your car tires along with steel cabling. Obviously, the fibers that are lighter but stronger than steel would be better suited for making car tires. Kevlar is probably, though, most famously known for its use in bulletproof vests. Anyhow, back to the plastics of today. What makes the plastic products of today a little more unique is that they aren't technically derived from natural products. The foundational component of what we regard today as plastics is typically crude oil, natural gas, or coal. For example, crude oil is taken from the ground, refined at refineries, and then converted into thousands of products from propane to gasoline to waxes to various oils and, well, plastics of various sorts. Let me offer a super condensed explanation. When crude oil is pulled up from underground, it has a host of organic compounds, that is, compounds whose main ingredient is carbon. Substances with very low numbers of carbons are usually gaseous, such as methane, ethane, and one we commonly recognize, propane. As the number of carbons increases, these substances move from the gaseous state towards the liquid state, products such as gasoline, jet fuel, kerosene, and the like. As the number of carbons continues to increase further, waxes and substances like Vaseline and car grease are derived under the name of petroleum distillates. Unless it's a natural beeswax or coconut derivative, take a look at a tube of chapstick. It will likely have the words petroleum distillates listed in the ingredients. Beyond these come high carbon compounds, which are the building blocks for the plastics we are surrounded by each moment of our earthly existence. There are seven types of plastics generally used throughout the industry and provided to endline consumers, namely you and I. These are identified on the product by a series of letters and acronyms for their names. There is PET or P-E-T-E, which is polyethylene terephthalate, which is used to make the typical water bottle or pop bottle. Then there is H-D-P-E and L-D-P-E, which stand for high-density polyethylene, and low-density polyethylene, respectively. Essentially, HDPE sinks in water and LDPE floats. Then there is PP, which is polypropylene. There is PS, polystyrene, which can be inflated with air to make a foam product we recognize as styrofoam. Then there is PVC, which we are familiar with as it's sold under the name in that form. PVC pipes, PVC lawn furniture, PVC building materials, PVC Well, clothing doesn't list it as PVC, but a lot of clothing has fibers of PVC. And even blood storage bags are made out of polyvinyl chloride, PVC. Lastly, there is a category called other, which is just that, all the other plastics. These acronyms can be found on most products alongside a triangle recycle code. The recycle code is aimed at helping people expedite the disposal process and hopefully increase the likelihood that indeed it will be recycled. We all know the reduce, reuse, and recycle label, but apparently we're not heating it very well. Today, only about 9-10% to 10% of the plastics in production are recycled. That is problematic. Deeply problematic. We have the knowledge to recycle, and in many cases it has been made easier by allocating different trash containers for different products, but it just isn't happening. Why not? Well, it's a little more complicated, and we'll eventually get to that. The issue is we are producing almost everything out of plastic, which is, as we said, able to be colored, textured, and formed into almost anything and is also indestructible. The indestructible nature of plastics has raised awareness of late as plastic materials, microplastics, and trash are being found in wildlife, oceans, and anywhere humans have stepped foot and in some cases where we have yet to step foot. As a teenager in the 80s, I spent many an hour at our local grocery store bagging groceries. I was a bagger. This happened at the time when paper bags were on the way out and the plastic bags that we all know today were on the way in. These new plastic grocery bags were touted, believe it or not, for their environmental benefit. One of the primary selling points was the fact that fewer trees would be cut down and processed into making paper for bags. Further, These new plastic bags were lighter and therefore easier to ship, saving transportation and fuel, which is better for the environment. And even better, they were biodegradable. Biodegradability is an interesting word to use. It conjures up the ability to go out into my backyard and bury that bag and it would degrade into nothing over time. It may even be something helpful to the soil and provide some nutrients. Nothing could be further from the truth as we now know. Sure, the bag is biodegradable under the right conditions, but merely tossing them in the trash is not those conditions. Estimates range from 20 to 500 up to 1,000 years for a plastic bag to fully degrade. But even then, it only degrades into minute plastic particles called microplastics, which now are found in almost every body of water on the planet. They are even found in some plants, animals, and even in some human organs. We have made so many plastics which are virtually indestructible, they have become, well, ubiquitous. Again, I'm not trying to be preachy or hyper-environmental, but burying tons of plastics in landfills doesn't seem like the best alternative. This will simply further enshrine those substances forever. Maybe the answer is not to recycle, but to rather reduce plastic production and reuse items more than once. Let me explain. Recycling is just not happening. And if it does happen, it's merely recycled one time into a new plastic product that gets tossed into a landfill on its second go around. So I may be able to recycle my plastic water bottle, but only just to see it come around again as a plastic bag and end up in a landfill. In their work, Plastic Free, Australian authors Rebecca Prince-Ruiz and Joanna Othaford Finn highlight this idea of focusing on reducing plastic consumption and reusing it whenever possible. Think about James Clear's atomic habits approach and applying it to our plastic problem. Here's a hybridization of these two authors' approaches by tying together Clear's tiny changes for remarkable results and Finn and Prince Ruiz's plastic change ideas. Here we go. Big changes in plastic production don't just happen. It's made up of a compounding series of small choices and changes those choices begin by focusing on small incremental actions. For me, it took on the form of not using plastic water bottles in favor of a steel thermal container, which incidentally my son gave me as a free promotional item from his company. We've replaced most if not all of our plastic Tupperware with glass, which we like because it washes easier, using reusable straws if we use a straw, Reusing plastic sandwich baggies in my lunch bag a few dozen times before disposing of them. Yes, a box of 100 sandwich baggies can last me over a year. This doesn't mean I'm better than anyone. It's just a small micro change that I've made intending to reduce my plastic usage and reuse items repeatedly. You see, the issue with plastic is not that it's evil or anything. It's simply we're producing far more of it than we can adequately dispose of. We value it because it's waterproof, indestructible, and so versatile. The problem is we're making so much of it and it doesn't ever leave us. We have so many single-use items made from plastic and we're producing more every second that it's kind of like being in a sinking boat trying to bail out water while another person's up at the front in the boat drilling holes in the bottom. We need to stop the production rate and focus on reusing what we already have produced. Granted, there are some single-use items we truly need as single-use, particularly in the fields of medicine and hygiene. No one wants a doctor to don a single-use surgical glove a fourth or fifth time before surgery, and the thought of reusing an ear swab is rightfully repulsive. The real issue is not plastics. It's the longevity of its lifespan. Let me reiterate that because this is where we often lose touch and people turn from informed consumers to radical activists. The real issue is not the plastic, it's the longevity of its lifespan. We need to reduce the prevalence and lifespan of single-use products. In short, can we opt for a multi-use product? And if not, can the single-use version of the product break down far quicker? That's the holy grail of plastic remediation, and there are several exciting products in the pipeline. When we come back, we will investigate some of the scientific breakthroughs aimed at solving the plastic's lifespan problem. Hey. Thanks for listening to When Science Makes History. The research is a labor of love and interest and we hope it expands your knowledge and that you truly enjoy it. The podcast is really intended to grow our understanding of topics in science that actually had a part in shaping the course of history. You see, all disciplines of learning are interrelated and not separate islands or individual subjects such as we had in school. And here we're just trying to bring them together in an informative and who knows, potentially entertaining manner. So thanks for listening, and we truly appreciate your support of this podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at whensciencemakeshistory, and be sure to reach out if there are other topics that you wanna see mentioned on this podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to this episode of When Science Makes History. Today, our focus is on plastics. Just to reiterate, plastic itself is not the problem yet rather the lifespan of plastics is the problem. Plastics can last for hundreds and speculatively thousands of years. They will long outlive us, and each American uses about a pound per day. Basically, each of us is leaving one pound of eternal waste behind us each day. That trail has found its way into the deepest parts of the ocean, top of Mount Everest, the far reaches of the Antarctic, and countless locations around our own neighborhoods. So, How do we reduce this amount of plastic? How do we get upstream of the seemingly permanent nature of plastics? Well, here's some steps. An exciting and growing field of research surrounds bio-based plastics. These are plastics that are sort of going back to their roots, no pun intended, as they are derived from renewable products in lieu of petroleum derivatives. These include bamboo, soy, hemp, and so forth. One example is plastic from hemp. Now, hemp typically conjures up the drug scene and is so often incorrectly associated with marijuana. The idea of plastics made from marijuana is not correct at all. Hemp actually has been grown for centuries, even in the United States, for its valuable cellulose fibers. These fibers were used in rope for centuries, before nylon came on the scene, and we now have nylon rope. Hemp is actually a valuable multi-purpose plant crop. Here's a simple explanation. There are two plants with two different levels of a psychoactive compound called THC. Hemp has a very low THC level, below 0.3%, 0.3% that is, whereas marijuana has a very high level of THC. Here's an analogy that maybe will make it more sensible. Tobacco, we all know, contains nicotine, up to about 3%. Tomatoes, which are incidentally in the same family of plants as tobacco, the nightshade family, also contain nicotine, only about two to three micrograms. One is a salad vegetable and one is a smoking vegetable. It's sort of the same with hemp and marijuana. They're the same plant, but the key differentiator is the amount of THC. Potatoes, that's another good example. There's a crazy variety of potato types. While all are part of the same species, there's a tremendous variety among potatoes with some actually being poisonous to humans. You never find those potatoes in the grocery store aisle for obvious reasons. Like potatoes, hemp has a tremendous variety of uses. In fact, to prove this point, Henry Ford actually built a car out of hemp that used ethanol derived from hemp as a fuel. Basically, he kind of made the first cellulose-based plastic car prior to the invention of plastic resins, and fiberglass, which are the plastics of choice for today's automobiles. Glenn Kale, president and CEO of the Hemp Plastic Company, looks to do the same. Bring hemp into the common market as a plastic alternative. When I asked, he recently sent me a sample of their product, plastic made from a combination of 75% hemp and 25% polypropylene, which his company shipped to me in a reusable plastic package. His efforts to reuse as well as reduce were obvious. They are essentially removing 75% of their dependence on petroleum-based derivatives and using plant materials in their place. If you're curious, check out their website at hempplastic.com for pictures of these. They look like little greenish brown candy nerds, but smell a lot like lawn clippings. It's kind of cool. There's also a product called spudware, plasticware made from potatoes that are designed to fully compost in 180 days. I first saw these 10 years ago or so in a hotel when we were staying there. Again, it's a creative product aimed at reducing the lifespan of plastic for an item intended to be single-use. Recently, at a restaurant called Agape in Columbus, Ohio, I noted they had fully compostable plasticware. I was with my family, so I avoided the desire to pocket three or four of these to take home and run a little test to see how well they did what they promised to do. Maybe next time, I'll sneak a few out. Another intriguing process aimed at reducing plastic pollution involves pyrolysis of plastic. While this term sounds a lot like the burning of plastics, that's only partially correct. We all know that burning plastics is, well, terrible. Anybody who's ever burned some trash, tossed a styrofoam plate in the bonfire, overheated a plastic product at a melting point recognizes the thick, acrid, black, toxic smoke and fumes that plastics produce. However, the pyrolysis of plastic does the heating and melting of plastic without the presence of oxygen. This is called destructive distillation and in a small way seems to reverse the plastic back to, well, crude oil. I'm oversimplifying this, but not by much. Simply take some high-density polyethylene HDPE, Heat it in a sealed container, it will melt, then boil, then convert to gas. Just make sure no oxygen gets in the container while you're doing this. Take the gas produced, run it through a condenser, and out comes an oil-like diesel. You can find folks doing this all over the internet. In fact, a company in Ashley, Indiana named Brightmark does exactly this on a large commercial scale. The beauty of their operation is that they can accept all seven different plastic types, which don't need to be separately sorted, they shred these, convert them into pellets and feed them through a pyrolysis chamber. The plastics heated to a gas, the gas is then condensed into a purified distilled oil that can be reused to make either, well, more plastic or used as a fuel. Lastly, there's the Ocean Cleanup, a nonprofit whose mission is to develop and scale technologies to rid the world's ocean of plastics. This organization, under the leadership of Dutch inventor Boyan Slot, has done some fascinating things. By the way, he was only 18 when he started the company. His organization inventoried and studied the plastics already in the ocean. Then they developed a series of garbage collectors that pulled plastic from the ocean, sorted it, then recycled it into a usable product to demonstrate this feat can actually be done. The first product that they actually produced from ocean plastic trash was a pair of sunglasses. Folks could purchase these sunglasses, which contained a little QR code on the side, which showed them the spot in the ocean where the plastics likely derived from that were used to make the glasses that they were now wearing. They went on to develop tools called the interceptors, which are devices that catch plastics in rivers before they even get to the oceans. Again, their work's pretty amazing, so check it out at theoceancleanup.com. Their aim is to remove 90% of floating macroplastics by 2040. That's a goal worth supporting. In their book, Plastic Free, the authors started what they called a Plastic Free July. I offer this in time for a July consideration. Simply look and notice how much plastic we use. It's staggering. Once you start noticing, you won't be able to stop noticing how much of our everyday is wrapped up in plastic, pun intended. Plastic plates, water bottles, dish, soap containers, coffee cup lids, USB cable covers, tapes, adhesives, totes, garbage barrels, trash bags, spice containers, pens, pencils, bread bags, and shopping bags. And those are just the items I see around me as I sit at our kitchen table typing on a computer with plastic keys. So this July, or as soon as you leave this podcast, go ahead. Start taking a mental inventory of the plastic items you encounter. Ask yourself, can I reuse this? And is there a workaround to this item? If so, why not do that for a month? For us, We carry a tote of reusable bags in the back of our car. It's estimated a shopping bag that is reusable needs to be reused 130 times to make its production a net zero fare. We're not even close, but I like these bags far more. They're more resilient, sturdy, they can hold more, and they can even be washed if they need to be. So, there you have it. A little bit of a different episode of When Science Makes History. Plastics a ubiquitous polymer that can be colored, textured, shaped, heated, cooled, made waterproof, made bulletproof, and last essentially, well, forever. So can we find ways to reduce how much of it we consume? Can we find ways to reduce or opt out of single-use products? Take a look at your own personal plastic inventory and consider reducing, reusing, and if possible, recycling our plastic footprint. Thanks for listening to this episode of When Science Makes History.